This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we are going to deal with an issue that causes some of our judge friends, Tane, significant concern and worry. Don't worry, folks, we're not going to. We're going to provide you a step-by-step process, an analysis for handle how to handle this particular prickly circumstance. And this sometimes can get a little personal. Tane, tell them folks what we're talking about. Yeah, we're going to talk today about recusal and recusal motions and the law surrounding those. And so um, the main thing we want to emphasize, as Wade and I do often, is this, this is going to cause us to talk about cases that concern judges who may be friends of ours and people we know. And it's not that they did something wrong. It's just that they did something that the appellate court said uh, needed to be rectified. So uh, we're going to talk about a few of those cases today and give you some instructions about recusals and how to handle them. You know, folks, we when we were all growing up, we were watching TV shows and they would talk about names as names have been changed to protect the innocent or the guilty or whatever. And, and really, as we go through cases and we talk about this when we teach at, at uh, judges seminars, because our colleagues are the ones who uh, more often than not are the ones whose cases are being reviewed and they've been criticized or whatever. We know a couple of things are true. Number one. Sometimes the appellate decision barely resembles the case you heard at the trial court level. <laughs> Frequently true. And then number two, you are expected, and, and I heard Judge Rickman say this one time from the Court of Appeals, they are the replay booth. They get to run it back and forth and see if they had two feet in or one feet in, one foot in or whatever. And so they understand that they are not always that they are privy to time and and space that you and I tame we might not be privy to but so if we ever we got to make the call on the field yeah I mean if we ever say anything about the case it really has no reflection whatsoever about the players it like as you said it was just reviewed by an appellate court that's right so the very first rule and the most important rule about recusal motions Let's say it together, Wade. Don't Don't get get angry. angry. (laughs) People take this personal. We we take a lot of pride as judges as as being impartial, and we, we, quite frankly, there is a certain there is a certain level of sacrifice that goes with being a judge. You can't do what you used to do. You can't hang with who you used to hang out with. You can't say whatever you want on first from from a First Amendment level on social media. I mean, there are some things that you have to give up. So when somebody accuses you of having some sort of bias or et cetera, many judges at first get offended, get mad, get angry, whatever you want to call it. And that's just something, A, it's not going to lead anywhere positive, but B, 
it's not necessary, right? That's right. I, I think everybody needs to have the attitude that the cases that come in front of you are the cases that come in front of you. You don't own them. You don't have any ownership to them. And um, if you don't hear case A, then case B will come along and you'll hear that instead. And so you really need to have that attitude whenever you're dis- um, hearing cases because, uh, you know, there may be a reason that uh, that, that you don't that you don't need to hear a case. I mean, I would have to say, and Wade, uh, tell me if this is your case, I have probably recused from more cases without being asked than cases that I, lots more than I have recused because someone asked me uh, to be, to get out of the case. I think that's true. I, I, I think that's pretty common because most of the people that you pra- that practice in front of you probably believe that you know your situation, and if you don't think it's recusable, I don't know if that's a, if that's a appropriate form of that word. But if you don't think it's something that should be that you should recuse on, then they're not worried about it. But sometimes there are things where you also know, quite frankly, as a judge, you can't win. If you rule this way, you're going to be accused of this. If you rule that way, you're going to be accused of that. So sometimes it's better for everybody involved to simply recuse yourself. But as we'll see in some of the cases, and this is actually cited in here, it is as much a sin, I guess, to recuse where where you shouldn't as it is to not recuse where you should. I, I totally agree, Wade. Um, we, we need to be, this needs to be something that we use judiciously, um, that we use sparingly, um, but we use in all the appropriate cases. So now, Tane, when somebody files a recusal motion and they accuse you of something that's just flat out a lie, Mm -hmm. you can respond to that, right? (laughs) No, Wade. Um, In fact, you you have to be really careful how you handle these motions. Um, There's a real strict procedure, or or at least a a well-formulated procedure, for exactly how to handle one of these motions. And one of the things that's not included in that procedure is the opportunity for the judge to be heard. You don't get to fire back? No, you do not. And, And you shouldn't fire back. And quite frankly, you should train yourself to react in a way where you don't even have the the impulse to respond. We know that it's human nature, that, 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 that human nature will say that you want to respond, but the cases say you cannot respond even where the content is gratuitously defamatory, where it is a, just an out-and-out out lie. You cannot respond. Well, the good thing is, Wade, the law says that any allegations with regard to the judge stand denied automatically. And so maybe you can take some comfort in that. You know, there are probably people who sit around at night and and come up with um, plans for how to get rid of a particular judge or whatever. And so they'll, they'll, they'll accuse you of something that is just horrific and untrue. Because they know that the next rule is true, and that is if you respond, you are almost guaranteeing yourself to now be recused. Yeah. As the case law says, a judge's efforts at defending himself against a motion to recuse will inevitably create an appearance of partiality. And I think that the appellate courts have realized that there's some human nature involved in this, but they've also realized you just simply can't respond and don't get angry. So let's go through the correct process, Tane, and let's talk about once you get a motion to disqualify or motion to recuse, they're all the same things. 
what should you, I guess the first thing you should do after you don't get angry? Yeah. The first thing you do when you get that motion is stop acting on the case. Um, The case law is very clear that the first thing the judge needs to do is respond, uh, not respond, take care of, deal with the motion to recuse before you do anything else. And understand, these may be filed sometimes for strategic purposes because you're in the middle of ruling on something. But despite the fact that you know that that's why it's filed, you must rule on the motion. So the cases are saying that once you stop acting, these are the things you can look at at the motion, on the motion, and these are the only things. So write this down. Or go to (laughs) goodjudgepod.com. And check out our written outline. These are the things you look at. Number one, the timeliness of the motion. We're going to go back through in a minute and and deal with the, the particulars of these factors. So number one, timeliness of the motion. Number two, legal legal sufficiency of the affidavit. Yes, an affidavit is required. And number three, the legal sufficiency of the grounds alleged in the petition. The judge has no power. No power. To do anything else. Anything. In the case. Nothing at all. Let me just let me just make sure you understand that, folks. Don't do anything other than make those three determinations. And we'll go into that in a little detail. So you t- you stop taking any further action and you take you take a look at these three criteria and these three criteria only. And if all three are met, in other words, it was a timely motion, the affidavit was sufficient and the grounds if you assume everything in there is true, even though you can prove it's not, you have to assume everything is true. Right. If it is, would it potentially give rounds to recusal? If so, you have to have the case heard by a third party, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Well, let's, let's start with the, with well, the let's timeliness. Back, let's back up and do one oh. thing first, Wade, because it's okay. something we forgot to do at the beginning. Where do we find the rules about recusal? Um, Uniform Superior Court rules? There you go. It's Rule 25, right, Wade? Rule 25.1 will give you all of these rules, and they are referenced in almost all of the appellate decisions again and again and again and again. And they would – that is where you should go. Now, you know, we've had some of our friends in probate court here, and I haven't checked the magistrate court rules and the state court rules, but I did have a reason to look at the probate court rules, and those – they also have them there. So if you're in another class of court, the rules are probably within your uniform set of rules that apply to all courts of your class in Georgia. So, Wade, let's talk about, uh, the first of all, the timeliness um, factor. Well, first of all, how, how does someone have to file a motion in order for it to be appropriate under Rule 25.1? It has to be made in writing. Okay. And it has to have an affidavit attached. Now, that's... Some people get lost in the, the form of an affidavit, and the law is pretty clear. It doesn't have to be in any format that you decide. It has to be signed, mm-hmm. and it must be signed in front of someone authorized to administer oaths, mm-hmm. i.e. a notary. As long as those two things exist, even if it's on yellow notebook paper and it's handwritten and there's scratch outs, I mean, whatever, don't get lost in the form. It's really the substance. Is it signed, and is it signed under oath? It must be in writing, and then once you become aware of it, the party that who becomes aware of an issue, the timeliness issue that could potentially lead to recusal, they must file promptly upon learning of it 
and as they say, to, to, to do otherwise would promote gamesmanship, but the motions, at least under the Uniform Superior Court rules, must be filed within five days after the affiant first learned of the issue that could lead to recusal and not less than 10 days prior to any trial or hearing unless they can show good cause for a longer window of time. So, so Wade, we get a lot of motions to recuse a lot of, from, uh, from self-represented litigants who um, will say, well, Judge Padgett ruled against me on this motion, and the ruling that he gave clearly shows that he's prejudiced against me, and I can't get a fair trial in his courtroom. And they file that a month after you've ruled. Um, is that sufficient? It's insufficient for two reasons. One that we'll deal with right now, it must be filed within five days of the event. Number two, though, and something that you have to keep in mind and keep reminding yourself, is that any basis for recusal must be extrajudicial. In other words, it has to be not related to a case. If you could go around recusing judges, and this just makes sense, if you could go around recusing judges because they ruled against you and then keep on doing it until you find one that rules with you, that would be preposterous. And and the law is real clear on that. It has to be something from outside of a ruling in your case. It has to be extrajudicial is, is the phrase that is used. I'll give you a good, a good example um, of extrajudicial issue. Um, my wife is in communications. Um, Right now, she has a contract with a particular law firm to help them with communications. And so I am recusing from every case that that law firm uh, has that comes before me. The reason being, my wife is getting paid a paycheck by that particular law firm, and I don't feel that the appearance of that, if I were ruling on a case for that particular law firm, is appropriate. So I have recused from, for the duration of the time that she's doing work for them, I have recused from cases uh, that they're dealing with. That's completely outside the judicial process. doesn't have anything to do with the case or, or any of the merits of the case or anything having to do with it. It's an extra judicial judicial issue, um, but it's relevant to my hearing the case. You know, this this timeliness thing is real because, as I, we told you, there's only three things you can look at, timeliness, sufficiency of affidavit, sufficiency of grounds. If you don't, you being the person who's seeking to have somebody recused, don't file within five days and you don't show good cause for why it, five days should be excused, your motion should be dismissed out of hand. Right. Without really without regard to substance. Now, as a practical matter, you're going to want to look at the substance, but that can be dismissed. So let's let's talk way about uh, those three things. If you're the judge and you're and you're the you are the trial judge who's asking to be recused motion to recuse comes in and you look and you see, OK, it was filed within five days. What's the next thing that you look at? Now you look at the the sufficiency of the affidavit. And, and what does that mean? And it doesn't mean, again, that it has to be in a particular form. It doesn't mean that it has to have certain words. It means, is it signed and is it signed under oath? It must set forth the, the specific reasons for which the, the bias allegedly exists. And it can't be just a conclusion or an opinion like he doesn't like my kind of people, whatever that 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 is, or, or she doesn't ever rule with the plaintiff 
that's conclusions. You have to show facts, and they has to be signed under oath, and it must have that jurat, as they say, the, the, the signature in front of someone authorized to administer oath, the attestation of the officer. But the form doesn't control. So don't get lost on the form. Just see, is there is it signed in front of a notary? I mean, we'll just call it what it is. Is it signed in front of a notary, and does it set forth alleged facts? That's it, period. So, Tane, we've got the timeliness. We've got a legally sufficient uh, affidavit as to form. What about that third ground, the sufficiency of the grounds? Right. So, as I said a minute ago, there are certain things that – wouldn't require recusal under any circumstances. So, like. so as we were talking about a minute ago, uh, if the sole ground for request for recusal was he ruled against me in my motion for summary judgment and his ruling clearly shows that he doesn't like me and isn't going to give me a fair trial. And so therefore he needs to recuse. There wouldn't be a set of facts that the affiant could prove that would require recusal under those circumstances. You have to assume that all facts are true. And they, and, and the court says even when you know they are in fact false, you must assume that they are true, that they are facially true. If those things are all true, would you have to be recused? And so when you have some pro se litigants who file – um, when it, what was it? Gratuitously defamatory. Yes. Uh, material. You have to assume that's true, though. So if they did it timely, if they did it in a manner that has an affidavit that has a jurat, and then you, if you have to assume that they are true, and if they were true, would that give rise to recusal? Basically, you have to find that that is a valid recusal motion. And then we'll talk in a minute about what you're supposed to do. But essentially, you're going to have to hand that off to somebody to have a third party determine whether or not you should be recused. So so I'll tell you what my rule of thumb is on these things, folks. And this is just Tane's rule of thumb, and it's not what the law says because we just told you what the law says. My rule is if they filed it within five days and if it, in, it includes an affidavit that states some grounds for recusal, Unless the grounds that they state in the recusal are completely preposterous, I generally move to the next step of the process, which is letting someone else make a determination. Now, again, that's not what the law requires. But if there is an allegation in there that, you know, for any reason might be found to be true, um, no matter how preposterous it might be, I go ahead and let someone else make the determination of recusal because they're going to make a reasonable determination about that and send it back to me. Now, the, it might help you to know that you cannot, as the judge who's, whose recusal is being sought, conduct an evidentiary hearing. That only makes sense. And if you let that be your guidepost, that you can't have a hearing to determine why it is that they think that you sleep with Martians, then you have to assume that that's true. And does that somehow recuse you? And I, I wouldn't imagine that's true unless you were somehow hearing Martian cases. But but I'm trying to give an extreme example to make an extreme point. You right. can't have an evidentiary hearing because you cannot make a determination whether they're true or false. You can only do you can only determine what I guess is a matter of law, assuming everything's true, that whether or not it is sufficient. Otherwise you have to hand it off to a third party. 
Okay, so let's talk about that. So the next step in the process under Uniform Superior Court Rule 25.1 says, if those three criteria are met and the reviewing judge makes a determination that they're met, first of all, Wade, do you need an order um, based on that uh, initial ruling that you're making or that initial review of the timeliness, the sufficiency of the affidavit, and the, uh, the, the legal sufficiency? I usually do. Do you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you need to at least show that you have made that process, that you've gone through that process and made a determination that a uh, review by another judge is necessary or so, not or not necessary. And if not, be very specific as to why not. The uniform rules tell you how to go about the process of selecting the judge. As you can imagine, if you're recused, but you get to pick your best buddy to be the, the hearing officer, that's not a great look. So somebody else, usually the chief judge, if the chief judge is who the complaint is made against, you go to the judicial district's administrative judge, and then they appoint somebody to hear the case. It might be somebody in your circuit. It might be somebody outside your circuit, but they make the determination then as to how the who will be the hearing judge. We'll call it that, the hearing judge. Right. And that, as Wade said, that procedure for who conducts or, or who decides the judge to hear the case is set forth in the rule. You know, you talked a little bit while, a while ago about voluntary recusal, and, and, and I want to make, make sure we're clear on this. You can always voluntarily recuse, you, but you do not have to. That's and, right. And there are plenty of cases that say that it is just as much a, a sin for somebody to recuse when they shouldn't as it is to not recuse when you should. And so right. the, there's no obligation for you to just sua sponte recuse yourself unless there is a violation of a canon. What you were talking about earlier about what your wife's doing with the law firm, that that would be a violation of a canon. That's right. To, to not recuse yourself. That's right. Um, and let me also take a, let me take a quick uh, aside here. There are also circumstances in which the better course of action may not be voluntary recusal, but where you might need to tell the parties something. You might need to give them information that they don't have. And I've got a good example of that. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because I tried to find some law on what is the procedure. I think all I could find was what is not the procedure. Well, yeah. And and so here's, here's an example. I own six shares of Home Depot stock. <laughs> I, I wow. Well, I owned I owned more, but I sold some. But I kept a few just for my son, and I'm going to give them to him at some point in time. But I own six shares of Home Depot stock. My court is also located in Cobb County, Georgia, where Home Depot's headquarters is located. So, as you might imagine, Home Depot from time to time will get sued in Cobb County, Georgia. I would imagine. Just because I own those six shares of Home Depot stock, if I owned a thousand shares or ten thousand shares, it might, I might feel differently. But I don't believe that I'm required to automatically recuse in every Home Depot case because I own six shares of stock. However, I think that it is important for me to tell the parties in a case that involves Home Depot that. I do have some tiny interest as a shareholder in that specific entity um, that I hold those shares of stock. The case law seems to say that in a case like that, where you're giving information to the parties and allowing them to make a determination uh, to whether you should, they should ask for recusal or not, um, first and foremost, what you shouldn't do is 
come in for a hearing and say, hey, by the way, I just want to let everybody know I own six shares of Home Depot stock. Is everybody okay with me going ahead and hearing this case? You don't have a problem with that, do you? You know, the leading question is probably a problem. But I couldn't find a case, Tane, that said this is always okay, this is never okay, uh, other than that's not going to be acceptable that that you sort of tell them on the spot and make them make a decision. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's kind of the rule of thumb is if you're going to inform parties of something like that, you should do it sufficiently so that they have time to make a determination as to whether to file a motion to recuse or not. Because understand, under this rule, they technically have five days after you give them that information to file a motion to recuse. And if you're in the hearing, they don't have their five days. So let's let's talk about that for just one moment. Do you have a pattern letter? Do you have a form letter that every time Home Depot's a party, you file or anything? I, I don't. Uh, normally what I do is, is scour the docket of upcoming matters and make a determination as to whether, because a lot of times I don't know if a case comes in where Home Depot's a party until something comes up on the calendar and brings it to my attention. And so if I go through and I see uh, that, that they're on a case, then I will send that out. Same thing with the law firm that, that my wife had a contract or has a contract with. If I see that one of their attorneys is representing a party on a case, then I'll send out uh, a sua sponte recusal. Now, I'll tell you that there are some cases that say you may not have to recuse from everything. It would look at, you know, to what level your wife has access and if that particular partner. But I understand that that you have decided the better the better plan is to just simply recuse. And that is always something that falls within the judge's purview if that is something that they feel would would violate a, a canon or a rule of ethics. Now, the other specific examples that we have talked about and some of them we've laughed about together is it, it is not sufficient grounds to require recusal where a criminal defendant has threatened to kill the judge. Right. The judge doesn't have to recuse himself. Or sue the judge. Sue the judge would be the same thing. Now, putting aside for a minute the fact that that would, seems a little crazy that, that somebody who's threatened to kill the judge might not have an awesome situation in the courtroom as that judge is ruling on their evidentiary motions and whatnot. The, the, the law is real clear, though. If you allow everybody who accuses or who alleges that they are going to kill a judge, all they have to do is send out a bunch of threats. There'd be no more judges. And, there, yeah, there'd be no way for the case to ever be heard. Correct. And it would allow people to judge shop and and get there to where they want to be. Now, the fact that you know, a lot of us in smaller jurisdictions know people. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the point. That's you're an elected official. You better know some people. And so the, the fact that you are acquainted with somebody or you know their people or used to work with their mama, that does not give rise to an automatic recusal. So for those of you who Somehow, now, if you are uncomfortable with your closeness with a party, then do what you have to do, you know, and, and, and voluntarily recuse. If you think that there's a no-win situation in it for you, voluntarily recuse. Well, let me go back to something, Wade, that um, I think gets misunderstood a lot on recusal motions. Once, I've, once I'm the judge who's been asked to recuse and I've made the determination that it was timely filed and that it was, uh, there was an appropriate affidavit filed and that there are certain allegations in there that, if true, uh, would requ- require recusal. The procedure says that the 
case then goes to another judge not to be heard, not for the case to be heard. It's not that is not the moment at which recusal has been determined. The only issue that's being determined by the other judge is does this judge need to recuse from this case? Because a lot of times people misunderstand that and they think, okay, those three criteria were satisfied. That means it's my case now and I'm going to hear it from this point forward. That's not what happens. That's exactly right. And I I didn't even see that as being an issue. That's exactly right. Now, Tane, on page 12 of our outline and that little number 45, the one that will be available on goodjudgepod.com, the a case came out in 2018 that caused a lot of people, at least a lot of people on my side of the world, a, a little consternation. A judge orally pronounced a finding. I, I think it was contempt, but don't hold me to that. Mm-hmm. Orally found that they, the party was in contempt. Within five days, the party who was alleged to be in contempt filed a motion to recuse, of which the judge was aware. Let's call it the sixth day. The other lawyer presented the written order that memorialized the judge's oral ruling. And so there was a thought was what we talked about earlier. Remember, you get a motion recused, just stop. Right. And I feel like that this could, this whole subject could get like set to some 60s, uh, you know, doo-wop band music. Just yeah. stop. <laughs> In anyway. the name of love. Yeah. So anyway that because you had to just stop, he's like, well, I was just signing the order that was a memorialization of what it is you are complaining about in your motion. Right. And the court found that the judge actually committed error by signing that motion after becoming aware that the remote, the motion for recusal was filed. So what you're saying, Wade is stop means stop. Yes. And, 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 if, if if you really don't hear anything else out of this recusal motion, here are a couple of things. This recusal motion podcast episode. Don't get mad. Yes. When you get one, stop and then break open a rule book. You know, break the spine open of a book or if you're a computer researcher, go online and get out 25.1. You know there's a rule there. Even if you don't remember the number, that's fine. That's why they have a index. Look at the rule. In a calm fashion, come back to our, our outline or come back to our podcast, listen to it as you are seething with anger, <laughs> and, and hopefully you can go through it. One other important point on that, way too, is there's actually, in addition to the, to the rule 25.1, there's a statute that talks about disqualification of a judge. Just understand, and we won't go into all the nuances, those are two different concepts, recusal and disqualification. One is statutory and one is is governed by the rule. They get conflated sometimes. Very People often. use them interchangeably and they're really not. That's exactly right. One is, is what essentially disqualifies you from a case in, in toto. One is a recusal that has to do with a, an extrajudicial act or uh, circumstance that keeps you from being able to hear a particular case. Just understand those are different. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that, but there's a statute on disqualification. Just understand that's not exactly the same as the rule we're talking about here. Now, some of our colleagues, Tane, used to be prosecutors, either the DA or an assistant DA. 
And so sometimes we get questions, especially when they, when they come to new judge orientation, they go, wait a minute, now I have to recuse myself on all probation revocations or fill in the blank 404B motions back when I was a prosecutor, anything was pending. Well, I don't have to because I didn't hear that case. I didn't have any direct involvement in that case. So let, let me tell you what the rules are. And I'll, yes. and I'll do this real quickly so we don't run too long in our, in our episode. If you ever worked as an attorney in this case, then you're always recused. It doesn't matter if you're a law firm, DA, PD, doesn't matter. If you ever worked in this case in any manner whatsoever, you're always recused. If a judge was merely somebody who worked at the DA's office, that is not a recusal basis. If you were just an assistant DA, a trial, a, a line trial lawyer, that it does, does, and you didn't work on this case, that doesn't require you to recuse yourself. But if you were the DA or a senior DA with, or ADA with uh, supervisory responsibilities over other ADAs, you must recuse in every case that was pending when you left. And there's a really important case that outlines all of this about, especially about district attorneys, and that's cited in your outline, but it's GUDE versus G-U-D-E versus the state. And you will see that, that you are not required to recuse, even if you were the prosecutor that handled the prior conviction that is now being offered as a 404B, uh, similar transaction sort of evidence, or as an aggravating circumstance to a sentence. You're not required simply because you handled that. It is in this case. Now, let's talk for a little bit about our friends who are involved in politics and that, that become like, you know, they're named officers in the reelection of fill in the blank, a judge, a, a, the ADA, a, a, excuse me, the DA, any other elected official who now comes before the court. Can they serve? Um, probably not. Uh, we're... Where you've gotten financial, direct financial support, let's say from um, the district attorney, or, or particularly there's a case out there where the district attorney served as the campaign chairman for the judge's re election or re-election campaign. Um, those are circumstances where, as a judge, you may want to seriously consider a recusal in that case or those cases that at are the specifically very least, involved. At the very least, refer it out. Yeah, at, the, at very least, have somebody else hear it so that some third party makes full disclosure. Exactly. And and, and what you're saying, I kind of looked at your face when when I when we went to this topic. It's it's the answer is it definitely depends. Yes, right. <laughs> you know, it, it depends on if you made an exceptionally large contribution, but nobody will tell you what exceptionally large means. Right. Um, if you were to have an office like treasurer or, you know, communications director or something within a, an election campaign and somehow one of those people now comes before the judge. In my humble opinion, in the Wade rule, you were talking earlier about the Tain rule, the Wade rule would be you're going to have to go a long way before you tell me why I shouldn't just recuse myself and remove that as an issue. I agree. But not all of us do the the, the same thing. So let's wrap this up. Let's bring this, bring, let's, let's bring this baby down, Tane. Bring it home. When presented with a recusal motion, you want to do the do nots? Sure. You do the do not. First and foremost, do not get angry. Second, you don't have to automatically recuse just because it's easier to do so. 
Third, do not respond to any factual allegations. And that includes don't have an evidentiary hearing. This is a this is something you're supposed to decide based upon what's presented to you in the motion for recusal and the accompanying affidavit. Instead of doing those things, you should do the following. Stop acting on the case. Look at the three required criteria, timeliness, legal sufficiency of affidavit, legal sufficiency of grounds. Assuming everything is true, would recusal be warranted? If yes, have another judge assigned, and there's a process for that. If no, enter a written order specifically showing which one of those criteria has failed, and then why you better be right. You, it better be obvious, not just merely kind of right. That's exactly right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to us again on this uh, podcast about recusal. I hope it's been helpful to all of you out there. If you need any additional information, don't forget to go to our website, goodjudgepod.com. And also the outline for this uh, podcast is available at that website. Thank you, folks. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Have a great day. Like what you're hearing? Let us know. Your ratings and reviews go a long way for us, and we appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.